Well, last week, just like we said that you don't just say that any random basketball player is better than Michael Jordan, to a sports fanatic or to a music lover, you don't say some random band is better than the Beatles. You did not make the argument to a Jew in the first century that someone was greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, and greater than the Levitical priests. If you were to make a statement like that, which I'm sure few did, you better have a list of facts about that person to back it up. Well, the writer of Hebrews is making that exact argument about Jesus, and he is backing it up with a ton of reasons why in the first part of this book, the book of Hebrews. We're back in Hebrews 7 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. We have seen that the author of Hebrews in the first half of this book is writing to a Jewish Christian audience, and he is making the point that Jesus is greater. Greater than what? Greater than everything. He is supreme in every way. He begins by showing that Jesus is God's greatest revelation. He is greater than the Jewish prophets. He's also greater than angels and greater than Moses. From the end of chapter 4, Hebrews 4, till now, till where we are today, he's been making the point that Jesus is also a better priest, greater than Aaron. And in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews devotes an entire chapter to explain why he is. We started on this chapter last week. We didn't get too far, did we? We got through verse 1. Uh, I promise that we're going to move quicker this morning, all right? Finish out this chapter. But I really needed to lay the groundwork last week. If you missed last week, you need to get online, fellowshipjacksonville.com, and listen to our sermon from last week. It'll really help you with what we're going to say today and moving forward as we study through Hebrews 7. We said last week and earlier in this series that the statement that Jesus was a superior priest greater than Aaron, though it is lost a bit on some of us, it meant a whole lot to the Jews in the first century. You see, the Jews in this day, they understood their need for a priest. In fact, God set this system up, this Levitical sacrificial system up to show the Jews their sinfulness and their need for an atoning sacrifice. Every time they walked by the area where the tabernacle was, was erected or, or where the temple was later on, and they saw that bloody scene, it was a reminder to them of their sin and a need for an atoning sacrifice. They also understood their need for a go-between, the need for a priest. Only the priests were authorized to enter into the holy place and, and do that work of atoning sacrifice, of, of offering up animals in sacrifice for sin. And only the high priest, one time a year, could enter into the most 
holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That most holy place was the meeting place between God and man on earth. And only the high priest could go in. Once a year, he had to go in and get out quickly. They understood that they needed that guy to go in, that man to go in to the meeting place between God and man on their behalf. They understood this. And we learned last week that this Jewish Christian audience, the writer of Hebrews is writing to, though they had had heard and responded in faith to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were still being influenced heavily by the way in which their ancestors and their Jewish brothers and sisters looked to and elevated these priests. And they were starting to look to them more and more as well. And they were drifting spiritually. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, teaching them something pretty extreme for this day. He's writing to them, telling them that there is no need to go and look to these flawed go-betweens any longer because Jesus has come. And he has acted in our place on our behalf as our perfect go-between, our superior high priest. He has lived the perfect life we can never live and has offered up the perfect and final substitute and sacrifice for sin himself. And he reminds this Jewish audience of this key truth so that they would know that Christ is the supreme priest, the last priest, the final priest, the ultimate priest, our eternal priest, and so that they would look to him and him alone and trust in him and not drift from the faith. Now, there was a major hang-up for the Jews with this teaching that Jesus is our great high priest better than Aaron, and that hang-up was that Jesus was not from the tribe of priests. He was not from the tribe of Levi, from the household of Aaron. He was from the tribe of kings, right? From the tribe of Judah, from the household of David. The writer of Hebrews understood this, and he understood how big of a hang-up this was for the Jewish people, which is why Jesus being our supreme priest is the major theme of Hebrews. We have said it's, it's really the heart of Hebrews, It's the main point of Hebrews 7. In verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews counters those who question Christ's priestly credentials because he's not from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron, by making the point that Jesus is from a different priestly order, a superior order, the priestly order of a man by the name of Melchizedek. And we have talked about Melchizedek. We talked about him a lot last week. Great detail in this series already. We, we said last week, though he's just mentioned briefly in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14, the details given about Melchizedek's life serve as an illustration of the priestly office of Jesus and the work he came to accomplish. So his life was meant to serve as an illustration. Melchizedek was not Christ in pre-incarnate form, as some people say. He was not an angel. He was a priest, and he, had, he was a man. And the reason why he had to be a man is because he was a priest. The priests had to represent mankind. 
And to do that, they had to be a man. So Melchizedek was a man. But he is also a picture of Jesus in the person and work he came to do. And we don't have time to go into great detail like we did last week into what was said about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. If we did, we would never get beyond this section. I know y'all want to get beyond this section, right? Y'all want to move through the book. So again, if you missed last week, get online, listen to the sermon from last week. It'll really help you with what I'm going to say today and moving forward. All right. I will say this. Melchizedek was a person who lived around the time of Abraham. And he is, again, what is called a type of Christ. That does not mean he is on par with Jesus, but what this means is what the Holy Spirit gives us about Melchizedek through Moses in Genesis, those details illustrate who Jesus is and the work he came to accomplish. What is said of Melchizedek and the details given about his life paint a picture for us of the person and work of Christ. We looked at two things about this mysterious figure last week, and so that's where we're going to begin. I'm going to give you a brief recap, and then hopefully we'll finish the passage today. Notice what we're shown here about Melchizedek and why he is a greater priest than Aaron and how his person and position pictures the work of Christ. Number one, the Melchizedek priesthood was universal. That's the first thing we learn. Now, this could not be said of the priests from the household of Aaron, okay? They were appointed primarily to be the go-betweens for the Jewish people. Melchizedek's priesthood is before Aaron. During the time of Melchizedek, it was before the Aaronic priesthood. It was before Aaron. It was before the Jewish people. It was when Abraham was still Abram, right? So Melchizedek was a priest before Aaron. Notice what we're told about Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Focus in first on that second phrase again. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Notice there's nothing mentioned about Melchizedek's people, his pedigree. We don't know anything about his ancestry, nor about the people he ministered to. We, we do know he ministered in Salem, which many believe is around the area of Jerusalem. Today it was Jerusalem. He was ministering in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, right? And he was priest of the Most High God before the Jewish priesthood to a people who lived before the Jewish people. Now again, Melchizedek had a father and mother, parents, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents, but we have nothing listed here, just that he's priest of the Most High God. That is significant. The Spirit of God, by omitting these details, is having Melchizedek function as a type of Christ and is showing us that the priesthood of Melchizedek, watch this, is related to all men, whereas the priesthood of Aaron was related primarily to the Jewish 
people. So when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he's making the point of the kind of priest Jesus is. Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews. That's great news for us Gentiles, amen? He's not just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the Savior for the world. Jesus did not simply come to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel, but he came to atone for the sin of all those who trust in him. He came as what the Latin word for priest says, pontifex. He came as the pontifex, which means bridge builder. He came as the universal bridge builder. He came to make a way for both Jew and Gentile to be forgiven of sin and restored to God through faith alone in his person and work alone. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.13. In Christ Jesus, Gentiles, amen, Gentiles, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Melchizedek priesthood is a superior priesthood because it was universal. And Jesus is a priest in this way, in the order of Melchizedek, and has come as a universal priest, a universal bridge builder for both Jew and Gentile, for all who forsake their sin and trust in him alone for salvation. Second, we said last week that the Melchizedek priesthood is a royal priesthood. Look at verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek, in addition to being priest of the Most High God, was king. He was royalty. That cannot be said of any of the Levitical priests. There was never that combination. Israel's priests were never kings. And their kings were never allowed to function as priests. But we learn that Melchizedek was a different kind of priest. He is, his priesthood was a royal priesthood. He is a king and a priest. Guess what? So is Jesus. He, he, he is king and priest, right? Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek. He is the king of kings, the king of God's kingdom, and our great high priest. Jesus, God the Son, came from heaven to earth as our great conquering king. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to conquer sin and death. He came to usher in God's kingdom as the cornerstone of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom. He came to make a way. Our great king of kings and lord of lords conquered sin and death, made a way for us to be brought into the presence of God through him. How does he accomplish this great work? He does it through his work as priest. He does it by trampling death with death. He does it through his death and resurrection. And because of that, we should look to him and be set apart for him and him alone. We should place ourselves under his authority. We should be trusting in his superior work because only in and through Christ is there victory over sin and death. Only in Jesus can our sins be atoned for. Only in Jesus can we be forgiven of sin and restored to God. That's the point the writer of Hebrews is making. But he's not done. 
Notice another reason why the Melchizedek priesthood is a superior priesthood. Because it's a priesthood of righteousness and peace. Now, let's look first at righteousness. That cannot ultimately be said of Aaron's priesthood, right? The Levitical priests, many of them messed up royally, didn't they? Remember when Moses is receiving the law? What's Aaron doing? He's leading God's people and breaking it. He was flawed, wasn't he? His sons were not any better. Nadab and Abihu, just read about them in Leviticus. They were struck down for their abuse as priests. And like we've said, the Levitical priests did not have the power to, to conquer squat, did they? They could not conquer sin and death. They could not destroy the works of the devil. While they continued to minister, that veil in the temple continued to hang which showed that sin had not been dealt with. Though the high priest could enter in one time a year into the most holy place, he couldn't bring anybody with him. He couldn't open up the way. They were flawed go-betweens who had to offer sacrifice for their own sin along with the sins of their people and did not have the power nor the sacrifice to offer that could bring people to a state of complete peace with God. We're told later in this book, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, Hebrews 10 Four. So they were at odds with God at times and with each other. Melchizedek's priesthood, however, was a priesthood of righteousness and peace. Look at the end of verse 2 in Hebrews 7. We'll come back to the uh, first of Hebrews 7 verse 2 in a minute. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, notice here, the author is not saying that Melchizedek himself is perfectly righteous and that it was his reign that brought about peace between God and man because if that was the case, Christ would not need to come, right? Remember, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, which means what we learn about Melchizedek, the details of his life, point to Jesus and paint a picture again of the person and work of Christ, the work he came to accomplish. Notice we're told that Melchizedek's name means righteousness. Righteousness refers to a right standing before God and living rightly for him. Melchizedek's name is righteousness. Then we're told he's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Now, Salem was a real place around Jerusalem. But the word Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which many of you know means peace. So here we have another illustration of Melchizedek that paints a picture of Jesus and the work he came to do. We're told Melchizedek's name is righteousness and his city is peace. We learn in scripture that Jesus was perfectly righteous, right? He fulfilled all righteousness. He lived his life in right standing with God and in perfect obedience to him. And he did that for us. And we're also told that he came to us, became one of us to make peace between us and God. And he did it 
through his life that he lived and the work he accomplished at Calvary. He laid his life down for us. He endured God's wrath for us. He was crushed by God for us so that we, through faith alone, in him alone, could be forgiven of sin and be at peace with God. We're told by Paul in Colossians 1.20 that Christ made peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're told, believers, that because we have forsaken our sin and are looking to him and trusting in him alone for salvation, we have Christ's righteous life applied to us in exchange for our sinful one. And we have moved from being at odds with God, enemies of God, to being children of God and being at peace with him. That is why Christ is supreme. Many of the priests of old were no more righteous than the ones they represented. When they offered sacrifice for sin, they had to offer sacrifice for their own as well as the sins of others. They had no righteous life to offer in exchange and could not ultimately bring peace between God and man because they didn't have a sacrifice to offer that could appease God's wrath that was set against sin. Only Christ could offer that kind of sacrifice by laying his life down. And folks, aren't you glad that Christ did? Scripture is clear. We are sinful, set against God, enemies of his and our sin, but praise be to God, he sent us a perfect priest, one who lived the perfect life we failed to live in every way, laid his perfect life down in order to make peace for us through his blood shed on the cross. So Christ's priesthood is a superior priesthood because it's a priesthood of righteousness and peace. Notice what else. We learn that the Melchizedek priesthood is eternal. Now, this was certainly not true of Aaron's priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was temporary. It was a temporary system. It was meant to be replaced. We learned that from Old Testament prophecy. And the priests were, were temporary because they died, right? They would only serve for a time, they'd die, and then someone else would come along and work and function as priest in their place. The Melchizedek priesthood is different. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, underline that word, the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. No mention of father and mother of Melchizedek. Simply omitted in Genesis 14 so that he can function as a type of Christ again. Now I want you to understand this. It's very, very important. The fact that there is no mention of Melchizedek's family is very, very unique, totally foreign to the Jews. Jewish priests and kings were always presented with a long list of where they came from, the family they were born into. This was especially true of the priests. They wanted to make sure they knew who your mom and dad were, right? So that you were to function as priests. There could be serious consequences for one to function as a priest who was outside of that priestly lineage. And for Something else that this long list of names tells us once again is that this Jewish priesthood, we learned from the long list of names that it was temporary. 
they became priests at a certain time. Then they died or they were old and replaced, right? And they eventually died. For Melchizedek, however, no such lineage is listed and for good reason. Scripture is silent on this because, again, he is to serve as a picture of Jesus. We're told he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Not literally, but in the biblical count, not listed. Resembling, the author says, the Son of God. We are told in Hebrews 5, 6, Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 20, we are told, Christ is made a high priest, what? Forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is shown in Genesis in this text in this way as not having beginning or end. There's no record given of his birth or death. He is always shown as alive in scripture to be a picture of Jesus. The author is showing us this is the kind of priest Jesus is. His priesthood is eternal. No need for any to come after, right? No need for any other, other than Christ. He is eternal. Now, there are lots of reasons given for why this is important, the eternal priesthood of Jesus, and we're actually going to get to that later on in Hebrews chapter 7. Let me just mention one briefly. One reason why is because if Christ is our perfect priest, who offered up a perfect sacrifice for sin and stands before God as our perfect representative, it's good news that he's eternal. And here's the reason why. Because if he was temporary, like the priest of old, we would still be in need of another, wouldn't we? We would not be secure forever. No, the author of Hebrews settles this issue by affirming Christ is our priest forever. He hammers this home. Very, very important. So Jesus is from a greater priestly order because his priestly order is eternal. Lastly, the Melchizedek priesthood is supreme because it precedes, comes before, and it supersedes the Levitical priesthood. Supersedes means it's replaced because with the Melchizedek priesthood because it's, it's better, right? It's better. It's, it's needed. Now, this argument runs from verses 4 through 10. It's the bulk of the passage. But the argument is pretty simple to follow, but it's pretty technical, all right? This whole passage is, I know. Bear with me, okay, while I explain this. He's making the point that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to Aaron because it precedes and supersedes the Levitical priesthood. And he gives proof by giving several examples. And the reason why he spends time to give proof is because I guarantee you there were, there were Jews in this day hearing this message going, oh yeah, the Melchizedek priesthood is better, huh? Prove it. Prove it to us that it's better. So he says, okay, I will. First proof is this. Look at these points. Abraham gave an offering to Melchizedek. That's the first reason. Look at verse 4. First look at verse 2. The, we're told in verse 2, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Then skip down to verse 4. 
See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. We talked about this a bit last week. Abraham paid a tenth of the spoils he received from defeating these wicked nations who had gathered together. He took the spoils from that. He was on his way home. He has an encounter with the king priest Melchizedek, and he gives him a tenth of the spoils from war to Melchizedek. Now consider how incredible this is. In a Jewish person's mind, there was no one greater than Abraham, okay? He was the man. He was the patriarch, the first father of the Jewish people. And through him comes Levi. Through Levi comes Aaron. Through Aaron comes all of these priests whom the Jews revered. And these priests did not give offerings. They took offerings. They received offerings from the people. Look at verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, he's talking about that special line of Levi, wasn't enough just to be born in the family of Levi. You had to be from the, the household of Aaron. He says, those in that priestly line have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their Jewish brothers. Though these are also are descended from Abraham, verse 6. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. The author of Hebrews explains Melchizedek did not pay tithes to Abraham, did he? He received tithes from Abraham. Abraham paid a tithe to him. We're told that Abraham, the patriarch, the first father of the Jewish people, gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. And that word spoils is the Greek word akrothenion. It means he gave him the best of the spoils, the first, the best, the cream of the crop, the top of the heap he gave to him. And Abraham, by paying a tithe to Melchizedek, shows the pecking order, right? So follow me. Because the priest who received tithes from all the Jewish people descended from Aaron and Aaron from Levi and Levi from Abraham. Abraham was the greatest among the Jews. He was the patriarch, the first father. And in Genesis 14, we see he, Abraham, acknowledges Melchizedek as being better than himself by paying him an offering, giving him his best, the first, the cream of the crop. Skip down to verse 8. The author of Hebrews says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So what he's saying here is that in one case, when the Jews were, were paying tithes to the Levitical priest, they're paying tithes to a dying priesthood, to mortal men, right? The Levitical priesthood was a dying priesthood. The priest died. And it was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. The tithes given to the priesthood of Melchizedek is better because it's given to an eternal and permanent priesthood. Here's the second proof given. Not only did Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's another reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior. This shows the supremacy of Melchizedek. Look at the end of verse 6. And Melchizedek blessed him, blessed Abraham, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Follow this simple argument with me. If the inferior is blessed by the superior, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek is superior. You with me? 
Very simple. Now think about this. Oftentimes, when Abraham is referred to in Scripture, he is described as being a blessing to others, right? The nation that comes from Abraham is going to bless all the nations. It's pretty important, isn't it? We're told, however, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that he was also blessed by God, right? That's one of the few times we have Abraham being referred to as a recipient of the blessing. The other time you have is in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham just like God. Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, and it's a wonderful picture of Jesus and the fact that he's greater than Abraham. Though Jesus is referred to as the son of Abraham in Matthew 1, he also said what? Before Abraham was, I am. Superior to Abraham. There is a third proof given here for why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and greater than the Levitical priest and why his priesthood precedes and supersedes that of the Levitical priest. And it's because Levitical priests were in the loins of Abraham. Now, I know that sounds like a very strange point, but it's actually right from the text, okay? Look at verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, follow this logic. Levi comes from Abraham, and from Levi come the Levitical priest from the household of Aaron, right? So back at their beginning, their beginning was with Abraham. You with me? It all started with Abraham. And because that's the case, there was a sense in which when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, it was the same as all the Levitical priests paying tithes to Melchizedek as well, acknowledging his superiority. Now, that is extremely technical, I understand, all right? We're preaching what's next in the text, right? And this text today has been extremely technical, but the author of Hebrews goes there because of his Jewish audience. They really needed to get this, and understanding this is really going to help you moving forward in this text of understanding Jesus as our supreme priest. The author of Hebrews goes there. He wants his Jewish audience to realize that there is a greater priesthood than the Jewish priesthood, and Jesus comes from this greater priesthood. Therefore, they should turn their trust away from the Jewish priesthood altogether, not look to them for help, hope, and salvation, but only look to Jesus. That's the main point. That's the main point. And folks, we should as well. Christ is the priest of a better priesthood. His priesthood is universal, eternal, royal, and righteous. It precedes and supersedes the only other priesthood God established. Through Christ's work as our superior and permanent priest, he has made a way for both Jew and Gentile to be forgiven of sin and restored to God through faith alone in Christ's person and work alone. Christ is our great king priest who has come to accomplish our salvation by condescending down to us, becoming one of us to live the perfect life we could never live. And by offering up the most perfect sacrifice that could ever be offered, his perfect and sinless life 
through that sacrifice, he made a way for guilty sinners like you and me to be forgiven of sin and made right with God through faith alone in Christ alone. And I urge you today, like I do each and every week, if you have not, today's the day to give your life up and over to him. To step up off the little throne of the kingdom of self and bow your knee to King Jesus. Make him your Lord today. Forsake your sin. Make him your Lord so he can become your great high priest and stand before God on your behalf now and forever. Let's pray.